The Apostle Paul has many things to share with the church in Rome. But before he gets into the body of the letter, he takes a moment to express his gratitude to God for the ministry that is being accomplished through them and indicates his excitement to come and spend time with them as the Lord is willing. This Roman church has earned a bit of a reputation in a good way. Uh, this is a little different than the church in Corinth that we studied a little while ago. Their reputation was that they lived in a land of great sin and they were doing many things that were questionable or downright uh, adverse to the word of God. But that wasn't the case necessarily here in the church in Rome. Their reputation amongst the other believers in various churches was very positive. Uh, they were thought highly of. The body of Christ is not <clears throat> to be seen as a private organization because the proclamation of the gospel is a public exercise. And so we should be mindful of the fact that the things that we do will gain a reputation in the world that we live in. Matthew chapter 5, verses four through six, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all, the house, all in the house. <clears throat> in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> this is in part an extension of the honor that is bestowed upon man at creation, that the image of God is to be displayed in each human being. Now, fallen man, as we all begin our lives as, fallen man fails miserably at reflecting the image of their creator, but redeemed man, those who have been impacted by the work of Jesus Christ and made new by him, has been given the spiritual vitality to project a faithful depiction of Yahweh to the world. And we should take that seriously, that responsibility of bearing the image of the one we worship. On a corporate level, as a church, the New Covenant Assembly of Saints has been issued a mandate. God has given us the responsibility to take the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the whole world. We cannot hope to do that if we remain anonymous. And so there will always be a sense in which the church is subject to public scrutiny. And the way that we conduct ourselves will reflect upon the God who sent us to do this work. A lack of truth, a lack of love in the church will send the wrong message to the world. Not only about our congregation, but also about the God whose image that we bear. But that is not the case with this Roman congregation. Thankfully, the church in that city is spoken of far and wide. And, and what does the word, what word does Paul use here to describe them? He calls them faithful. They are a church whose faith is famous in the world. Because of this, Paul gives thanks to God for the work that God is doing among them. Now, I want you to take note of this. Paul is thankful this way in all of his letters. He's always thankful for the congregations that he reaches out to, to the churches that he had a hand in establishing. Um, the churches that he helped plant and where he rose up elders to establish and continue the preaching of the true gospel. But we should see that by giving the same gratitude to God for this church in Rome, who owes nothing to Paul for their establishment, who did not rely on their teaching to begin, is evidence that Paul is happy and thankful, not only because the hard work that he put in is bearing fruit, but simply because he loves the Lord and wants to see Jesus glorified in every way, in every church, regardless of whether they were personally connected to him or not. Paul's heart is, is not one of personal ambition. His heart is one of zeal for the gospel of Jesus. And his sincere expression of gratitude for these believers, these brothers and sisters, is indicative of the faith that Paul considers himself, uh, he considers himself to be a very small part of the equation, but considers with great care and concern the good name of his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And for this reason, Paul supports the church in Rome from afar, and he does so by praying for them. For the Christian, if, if you love someone, you're going to pray for them. And Paul is letting the church in Rome know that consistently, in support of the faithful way that they have been serving their Lord and bringing his name, honor, and dignity, he is praying for their well-being. He is asking God for their growth, their edification, their maturity. To get a feel for just how important prayer is in, in the view of Paul's ministry, I want to read to you a little section of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says from verses 8 through 11, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So Paul is writing to a group of believers in Corinth and he's, he's sharing with them that they went through a very, very difficult trial when they attempted to plant some churches in the, in the region of Asia Minor. In verse 9 it says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So God is turning this around. He's using it for His glory and helping these apostles to rely only on Him for their strength. Verse 10, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. But look at what He says in verse 11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So I'll pray for you is not just the thing you say when you don't have anything material to give to someone. Prayer is absolutely vital to the life of those who are trusting in God. And as we lift up one another in prayer, God strengthens us as a congregation. He hears those requests and replies. And He, the one who delivers grace, gives more grace to us. Paul has personally seen the impact that the prayers that other saints have lifted up on his behalf have made in his lives and his life and the lives of the other apostles and their ministries. No matter how big or small, a ministry without prayer is destined to fail. And so he cannot fathom a world where churches are not praying for each other's well-being. While he makes it abundantly clear that he will continue to support these brothers and sisters in Rome by way of faithful petition and prayer, he wants to be connected to them in ways beyond that. Prayer is definitely important. But Paul fervently desires to spend time face to face with these believers. Looking again at verse 10, it says, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you. May, may I now at last succeed, he says. And this indicates that at several points in Paul's past, a plan had been made by him to travel to the, to the city of Rome and establish a connection with the people that worship God there. But things beyond his control prevented him from accomplishing the goal. To this point, though Paul has been eager to make the journey and establish more personal connections with these people, it has not been God's will to allow him to do so. Many seemingly good things that we want to do are actually put to the side when God has a more comprehensive plan for us than we do for ourselves. We see examples of this in the records of the earliest mission travels contained in the book of Acts. Speaking of Paul and Silas and Timothy who comprised the second mission team that went out into the area of Asia Minor, in Acts chapter 16 we read starting in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came upon Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They're just getting shut down left and right here. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, what Paul's plan, while admittedly good and made with the sincerest desire to spread the gospel far and wide, were sometimes squashed, and not by the hindrance of the devil, nor by the poor luck of circumstance, but by the very hand of God himself, by the Holy Spirit preventing them from doing what they thought was right to do. And praise God that they were prevented. For without divine guidance, Yahweh telling them that they could not move forward in the direction they wanted to go, but that they needed to change course, through the divine guidance of Yahweh, Paul's good intentions may have prevented the churches of Macedonia from being established. Some very important, critical churches in the life of the early, early congregations. The Lord God sees all things. Whereas we are always operating with only a sliver of the information that we need to make the decisions that will set the course for our future. And so later, when Paul had begun to develop a great urge to go to the church in Rome, 
he apparently experiences a series of similar delays that prevent him from making this trip to go and see these brothers. The fact that he makes a great effort to explain his delays may indicate that there were perhaps some who were a little offended in Rome that Paul, whose special ministry and calling was to the Gentiles, and that was well known among the churches, Paul had not yet come to the church in Rome, especially given the prominence of that city. Why was he ignoring them? Why had not he come? And we can't be sure if there was offense there, but either way, Paul wants them to know that his desire to visit is not recent, that he's been making this effort for quite some time now, and he's going to persist in trying to make that dream a reality. He prays as we should pray here, that God would allow him to go, and that if God does allow, that he would also make it happen. And if he makes it happen, that God, uh, who helps him, would also bless the trip and the, uh, the things that come from that trip. But all this must come to pass only if it corresponds with the perfect will of sovereign God. Now we do know that Paul eventually makes this journey from his churches out to Rome. The last chapter of the book of Acts describes how Paul eventually was able to make that journey, though it came about in a very different way than perhaps he had initially planned. Rather than going of his own volition, Paul got arrested. He got arrested for preaching the gospel. There were many complaining, uh, claiming that he was starting uprisings in cities by peach, uh, preaching this man, Jesus Christ, who had been put to death by crucifixion by the Roman government. So they arrested him and they, they put many false allegations against him to try to get him imprisoned. But Paul, being a citizen of Rome, took advantage of the benefits of being a citizen and appealed to a higher court. And his appeal was granted. And so they had to transport him to Rome in order to speak to the Caesar so that he might see if these charges levied against him might be dropped or changed. So he wanted to make it to Rome, wasn't able to do it, and then eventually God arranged it in such a way that he went to Rome on Rome's dime. Chained to another soldier, he traveled uh, through much trial and tribulation and many uh, occurrences along the way, but eventually made it to Rome, probably in about 64 AD, right before a great fire there consumed a large portion of the city. But we do know... While we do know that Paul made it to Rome, we do not know if Paul ever made it to Spain. Remember from last week, we spoke about the fact that in the end of the book of Rome, uh, Romans, Paul shares his heart's desire to eventually establish such a strong connection with the church in Rome that they together might partner in sending the gospel into an untapped land, into this place called Spain, where people had not heard at all about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that is part of the reason that Paul makes such an effort to explain his doctrines and his theology to the Roman church in this letter so that they may have confidence that he is trustworthy and orthodox and a future partnership with him would begin to materialize. From the records that we do have, it would appear that Paul never did make it to Spain, but rather spent a couple of years in Rome ministering, trying to encourage the saints there as he says he's eager to do, before facing execution by beheading. Paul would have had his last personal fellowship, his last church interactions with these saints here in Rome on earth before the answer of prayer, of finally spending time with the Romans to whom he's, to whom he's writing now. They were the last congregation to whom he ministered to, very likely. And he says in verse 11, For I long to see you, and here's why, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. While an outreach in Spain is a long-term goal, the immediate motivation for Paul's request to God that he might make it to Rome, that he might visit his brothers and sisters there, is described in these two verses. And it is where we'll spend the bulk of our time in meditating on God's scripture this morning. First of all, Paul says that he has a spiritual gift to give this congregation in Rome. Is a spiritual gift for them. And this is probably not the kind of spiritual gift that we find in Romans 12 or in 1 Corinthians 12 where a catalog of spiritual gifts is listed that God might bestow upon the people of the church in order that they might have the ability to minister to one another and look out for each other's needs. Those are important gifts too. One person might be given the spiritual gift of teaching that he might encourage and 
help other believers gain knowledge of the Lord. Another person might be given the spiritual gift of service, that they might be eager to step up and fill a need whenever one arises and to put their strength to the work of the, the gospel. Another might be given a spiritual gift of generosity, that they might financially provide for the needs of those who are destitute or hurting or in crisis. These are all very important gifts. But typically they're not bestowed upon someone from outside. They simply begin to show up in an individual over the course of that person's sanctification. As God grows them, they begin to manifest these spiritual gifts. Paul is hoping to bring a gift to them from outside. And so rather, Paul is probably thinking and speaking here of the greatest spiritual gift, that he might come and proclaim the gospel among them and encourage them with the mighty word of God. When the gospel is preached, there is always a hope that those who do not believe will hear and will respond in faith, that God will use the preaching of the word as an occasion to spiritually awaken those who are dead in their sins, that they might see their grave condition and repent to the Lord, trusting in the mighty work of Jesus. And you might think, but, but Paul is writing to saved people. He's addressing the letter to the church in Rome, not just to the, the lost people of Rome. Why would he need to bring an evangelistic gospel message to them? Well, for the same reason that we continue to preach Christ crucified and Christ raised from the dead Sunday after Sunday here at First Family Church. Because the hope is that not only will there often be people who are visiting our church who may not yet be saved, but also there are very likely always some among us who think they may be saved, but do not yet have a full grasp of the gospel. By the preaching of the word, they need to be further exposed to the gospel before they'll experience the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and legitimately surrender to Jesus as their Lord. And besides, many of those who need to experience that are our own children, right? Our little ones may be born into strong Christian homes, but that doesn't mean they are born Christians, exercising faith, walking by the Spirit, that is not something you receive from birth or inheritance. Lord willing, that comes with time as they grow up listening to the gospel preached week after week and they see the example of faithful saints living according to the word all around them. And they hear the excellency of Jesus Christ proclaimed not only in their homes by faithful moms and dads, but also here in the pulpit when we are gathered to be strengthened and encouraged by the truth that sets us free. It is our constant prayer that God will use the preaching of the gospel to change the hearts of our kids, that they might one day grieve their own sin and call upon the name of the Lord for grace and mercy. So Paul wishes to come and to grant them with the greatest spiritual gift, the gift of the gospel proclaimed in all its glory, with Jesus Christ as the crown jewel of that wonderful gospel. And this gift is intended specifically to strengthen them it's not just a gift that saves the lost, but it is a gift that as long as we are receiving it, continues to build the power that fuels the church of God that they might serve him with greater fervency and obedience. Friends, does anything have the power to strengthen the faith and the hope and the courage of the believer more than the wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does any other reality carry the kind of force the kind of life-changing potential as the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel first delivers to us a clarion call about our sin. It exposes with clarity to us the truth of the thing that we so desperately try to hide about ourselves. We try to diligently ignore our own sin. And the rest of the world is typically content to let us because they, they don't want us to expose their sin either. But the gospel won't have it. The gospel declares to us that we are guilty of breaking the law of God. And we need to see that. We don't want to go on through life trying to convince ourselves that we are quote unquote good enough. The truth is what we all fall short of in the glory of God. And the sins that we commit when we fall short are serious and are, are a direct assault on God and his authority and honor. That gospel is the truth that stops us dead in our tracks and makes us deal with the great danger of sin that we are in if we are not in Christ. The gospel also reveals to us the great love and mercy of God. Even though the men and women that he created to bear his image universally fail to keep the covenant of God, even though they have earned 
his wrath with their disobedience and they deserve severe judgment for this, he has determined to display his love and grace by providing for these sinners what they cannot provide for themselves. God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to enter into their existence and to stand by their side. The gospel reveals that God intervened historically into the life of man and that Jesus took on flesh according to the prophecies of Scripture so that he could physically and spiritually keep the covenant that every other man is incapable of keeping. Only Jesus could keep the, the law of God because only Jesus lives his entire life in obedience to God the Father. And when the gospel is preached to us, it reminds us of the immeasurable love that is displayed when Jesus, through perfect, though, though perfectly moral and pure, allows himself to be put to death on a cross like a filthy sinner, taking the unthinkable weight of our sin upon his own body. Jesus agrees to be crushed in our place so that the sins of God's people might be punished correctly and they might be let out from underneath the legal guilt of those sins. Can you imagine that, church? Do not make the mistake of ever letting the fact of the gospel dull and, and become ordinary in your heart. That Jesus Christ suffered and died for your personal sin, for your lies, for your violence, for your selfishness, for your dishonesty, for your selfishness and hatred. If you're a Christian, Jesus suffered the pain that you earned for those sins so that you will not have to. Does that not strengthen your faith to hear that and to remember it even now? Doesn't it fuel your desire, Christian, to walk in a new way, to turn away from your sin and to live in holier God-honoring conduct, knowing that God has supplied the power and the ability for you to do so now that he has put your sin to death? And even more encouragement comes to us when we remember that this suffering that Jesus willingly endured beyond our ability to fathom was still not powerful enough to erase him. Christ died. He felt the breath leave his lungs. He became completely spent and expired upon that cross as the earth shook and the veil in the holiest of holies tore to two. His lifeless body was taken down from the cross and quickly prepared so that it could be buried in a tomb. But not for long, church, not for long. On the third day, the stone that sealed off that tomb was miraculously moved away. And the body that had been decimated in execution on the Friday before walked out of that tomb, alive, renewed, and powerful. For Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection, and those who put their faith and trust in him, though they die, have every reason to trust that they too will rise again. Jesus has overcome their sin, and Jesus has overwhelmed death itself. Those who enter into the covenant with Jesus are cleansed and made righteous. They are given his righteousness in place of their sinfulness. And a promise is given to them that though their bodies will eventually waste away and die, they too will experience a resurrection that will mark the beginning of their eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing has the power to strengthen us like the gift of the gospel. The more this good news permeates and works its way in every fiber of the Christian's being, the more prepared you are to take on whatever challenge the world has to put in front of you. But here is another wonderful detail about this passage. Paul is not longing to go to Rome only to give the gospel. Paul anticipates that his time with the believers there in Rome might also be a blessing and a gift to him. He says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is Paul's second immediate motivation for traveling to Rome. Paul hopes to be personally blessed by those who are there ministering to him. And this is remarkable in light of the fact that Paul has already acknowledged a special work that God has not only called him to, but has used to bear tremendous fruit in the early church. Paul is one of the few apostles. There were many disciples, but there were only a few apostles who could claim that they saw with their own eyes the resurrected Christ and could testify that he indeed conquered the grave. These apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit like we are, but God also used them to do miraculous signs and wonders to legitimize the message that they preached. 
They were, were many of them inspired to divinely write down the words that would serve the church as the scripture, the special revelation of God for, for the rest of eternity. Paul is a gifted church planner, a determined shepherd, a fearless advocate for the truth. Of all the figures that are recorded to have contributed to the remarkable expansion of the early church, it would be hard to argue that anyone had more influence and sway, besides Jesus, of course, than this man, Paul. He praised God to the Corinthian church that he had been called to remain unmarried because it afforded him a freedom to fully invest all of his time, all of his energy, all of his focus into telling the world about the salvation that they needed through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how dedicated he was to this mission. This is a man who had faced trial after trial in his efforts to spread the gospel message and to grow the church of God. And despite being in almost constant danger, and despite the threat of personal harm always lingering around him, despite being often stoned and left for dead, thrown into prison cells for his beliefs, shipwrecked off the shores of the land, or rejected and threatened by his own countrymen, despite all of this, Paul persisted for the sake of of the name of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is excited, not just to encourage the saints at the church in Rome, but to receive encouragement from them as well. Here is a man who is not ignorant to the significance of the metaphor regarding the church being God's body. Do you remember that metaphor, church? Paul teaches about this in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, he speaks about the fact that the church is like a physical organism, like a body. And the head of that body is Christ Jesus himself. And every other person who belongs to that body represents some piece of the body that is not a body separated, but is a body when it comes together. Each person is a significant member, capable of contributing in various ways to the well-being and the health of every other member connected to that body. Some people might have a role, special gifting and talents that seems very small, very insignificant, but if you take them out of the equation, the body doesn't function as it is supposed to. And so Paul taught the churches to give honor not just to those who are out in front leading, but to every aspect of the church. No matter who is involved, God has brought them there for a reason and a purpose, and is equipping them to do the holy work that the church is called to do. And so this metaphor speaks of the unity of believers. It speaks of the fact that we are all sheep under one good shepherd. And so no Christian is greater than another, as much as we just expounded on the, the wonderful things that God accomplished in the life of Paul, he did not see himself as a better Christian than the people in Rome. Nor did he think that they would have nothing to offer him despite the amazing catalog of experiences that God had allowed him to go through. It is the one Holy Spirit that fuels every ability. Therefore, all glory rightly belongs not to the person, but to the God who supplies the Spirit. We enjoy a fellowship of shared need and dependence as the church. We look around and we see that there are all people here that were once walking in darkness. And those who have called upon the name of Christ together can work in cooperation to bless one another and to be the church. You know, the church has often historically made the mistake of making more of its leaders than it ought to. We do see in Scripture that there is, is cause to be thankful for the leadership that God puts in place over us. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. So there should be an appreciation for the way that God supplies to us what we need through those whom he places in the church. But it is right to keep in mind that these men could only accomplish this work through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. So it is God who deserves our praise for the work that these men are doing. And if they are good shepherds, that's where they want the glory directed to. Not to themselves, but to the God who supplies them. Remember that in 1 Samuel, in the Old Testament, I just happen to be reading through this in my daily devotions right now. The nation of Israel was functioning as a theocracy, meaning that they were a, a gathering of tribes, 12 in total, 
13, depending on how you did the math. And these tribes were under the rule of one God, Yahweh, who spoke to them through prophet. Now, Yahweh was the head of state. He was the presidente. He was the king. And yet they looked around themselves and they saw other nations. And all these other nations had something that they didn't have. They had a man that looked and sounded like them sitting on a throne. And so despite the fact that they had the best politics in the world, because God's ruling over all things, they pled with God and said, give us a king like the other nations. They urged Samuel to ask God to put a king over the nation in the Old Testament. And this, this request is paralleled. It was a mistake. It was a huge mistake because as soon as the kings came, they had strife after strife after strife. Even the best of the kings of Israel fell short of what Christ the king can be. And this urge to put a king over the nation in the Old Testament in some ways is paralleled, I think, by the historical urge in God's church to try to create an unbiblical hierarchy to govern our Christendom. Popes and bishops have been given more power than any man in the church ought to have. And this at times has enabled them to do very severe damage to the people of the church and to its testimony in the world. That kind of broad leadership power is not their job, it's Jesus' job. And so one of the things I love about the Baptist's way of approaching Christianity is that in, in, in Baptist's ways of thinking, we honor the autonomy of the local congregation. We recognize that, that each man has the priesthood of the believer, that we all have been indwelt with the Spirit of God and can all serve Him well. And so our church doesn't need someone in a far-off place sending me my sermons to read off to you guys. They don't, they, we don't need that because we have the Word of God and we have the Spirit that helps us to know the Word of God and we know each other. And so we know how to preach and to, to minister to one another's needs here. The autonomy of the local church is a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean that we're all absolutely cut off from each other. There should be cooperation. There should be fellowship. But each congregation has been given the tools it needs by God to function in such a way that God is the head and we are simply doing the will that he has called us to do. So we would do well to always remember that while biblical elders are a blessing to our lives, at their core, they are simply saved sinners, just like everyone else. The apostle Paul knows that. And so he takes joy in the fellowship of the saints, knowing that every spirit-filled believer has the power to be a blessing to himself as well. Is this something that you appreciate as well? Do you care about the fellowship of believers? Do you, like Paul, long to be around other people who can also say, blessed be the name of the Lord? How much of a joy should it be to the Christian to spend time and days and hours with those who call upon the same Jesus as Lord and Savior? I pray that we will see here and, can, and come to appreciate this morning the mutual encouragement that comes from faith to faith. The people of God should, should long to spend as much time as they can with other people of God. We should, we should desire to be together deeply from our souls as Paul longs to be with the Roman saints. You sometimes hear people say things like, Oh, I love Jesus. I, I respect God. I just don't really like the church. I just don't like being around the people of God. Friends, that breaks my heart to hear people say things like that. How can you love God? And not love seeing God at work in other sinners like you. How can you love God and not love the bride that he has betrothed to himself to marry? Is that even possible to do? When you come alongside other believers and you live in close fellowship and unity with them, I will admit it, it can be very difficult. It is risky to love people who are imperfect. People have the capacity to still sin even though they're saved and to hurt your feelings, and to offend your soul. And I have to think that so many who say, I love God, but I don't love the church, perhaps it's because they've been hurt by someone within the church. Someone did them harm. But despite the fact that to love one another in the fellowship of the saints is risky and difficult, friends, it is absolutely worth it, and it is not optional for the Christian. It may seem far safer to isolate oneself 
And to never roll the dice that someone's going to hurt you, someone's going to upset you, someone's going to offend you or not appreciate you until you realize that God intends to bring so much of your blessing as a Christian through other Christians, through other people that were saved like you were saved. We're to encourage one another and build one another up. What does it mean to encourage? You don't need a degree to know this. It means to, to bring more courage to each other, right? To increase one another's confidence, to help you grow in your assurance that you have a Savior and your Savior is infinitely mighty. And so how is that done? It's done by turning one another's eyes up. When a friend comes to me and they're hurting and they're, and they're going through difficult times, my best gift to them is to remind them of who, who Christ is and to help them to see the wonderful gift that God has been to them and will continue to be through them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit internally, through the ministry of the word that we study and that we try to follow. The wisdom that we give to one another best comes from the word of God. And so the discussions that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ should be filled with the gospel. We should be surprised when our conversations don't find themselves somehow wandering back to the most important aspects of our lives. It should be so natural for us, Christian, to talk about Christ and to have the true fellowship of really lifting each other up so that we might see Christ better and enjoy the life that we have in Him. If you are never having conversations like that, if you, you get together with other believers, but it never seems to be about Christ, you talk about sports, you talk about the weather, you talk about a game I haven't even mentioned yet, right? <laughs> Go Eagles. You might not know this about your pastor, Keep loving me. I'm an Eagles fan. I'm an Eagles fan. I actually want my Eagles to lose, so you'll all be happy because I love you so much. But if that's what you're always talking about, about your cars, about fashion, and about whatever project you've got going on at home, you're not talking about Jesus. What does that tell you about your heart and your mind, Christian? What comes out of us is what is inside of us. If I'm having to deal with even the most mundane of topics on a regular basis, if so much of my time is being caught up in that, I will, by natural course, end up talking about that subject with others because it takes up so much of my headspace. How many of you have friends with babies or little toddlers right now? Many of you, right? You can testify. I think you've seen examples of this in, in your own life for sure. You'll be sitting there with your friends who are raising kids. And maybe you're not raising kids at all. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you're well past that stage of life. So you get actual REM sleep, you know? So you're at a different level than all us parents with little kids. So, so it's not where you're at at all. But your friend who's raising these little kids is right in the middle of it. And you'll be talking with them about things that are relevant to you. And all of a sudden, they start carrying on about how little Johnny is having the hardest time pooping. They just... They just start talking about their child. And you're like, I'm not raising kids. I don't have to deal with potty training or diapers. But because it's so much a part of their everyday, they just naturally start talking about it. And it can actually get a little bit annoying at times, I'm sure. Or they'll give you all the details about how they haven't gotten more than two hours of continual sleep for the last eight months. And they'll go on and on about it. These aren't things that are fun to talk about but they're on that person's mind all the time. So they inevitably leak out into the conversations that they have with their friends. If we are constantly meditating on Jesus, if our hearts and minds are thankful always for what he is doing for us, if we are thinking about his word and how to apply it, what should be leaking out of our minds in our conversations with other Christians? It should be Christ. We should be talking about Jesus. It should become natural to us. I fear that many do not bother to speak of Christ, even with other followers of Christ, because they do not bother to spend much time thinking of Christ on their own. And when you invest parts of your day studying the Word of God, pursuing Him in prayer, it will not only benefit you, but it will also give you something eternal to talk about with the people that you are friends with. It will enhance your ability to bless other people's faith by your own faith. So study the Word of God for you and for the glory of God, but also study the Word of God because you're going to talk to other believers and they need to be encouraged in that Word. How can you make an effort 
to bless the faith of others with the faith that God has given to you? How can your friendships be more saturated with a shared love of Jesus? Let me just give you some, some helpful suggestions, and these are on the back of your note sheet for you today, just regarding how people can practically improve in this area. Because you're not going to learn these things from the world. The world's going to say, talk about sports, talk about the weather, talk about whatever does not matter. In fact, we've got little slogans. Whenever you get together with family, you can't talk about two things, religion and politics. Who made up that rule? Religion should be the most important thing that we talk about with anyone. Politics isn't unimportant either, but religion's more important. (laughs) So here's some questions that you can work in to your conversations as starting points to help your fellowship with other saints be more Christ-centered. First of all, before you even begin the conversation, pay attention to how God has been growing and challenging you in your own life. And then be eager to glorify God by talking about that victory with another saint. Okay? So from, I did this for myself as I'm trying to train you all. I've had to learn to trust Jesus through periods where I feel powerless lately. The ministry has not been easy lately. And, and so many people that I love dearly are hurting and are struggling. My own son, Henry, has a, a terrible skin condition that has just caused him to be in utter pain for chunks of, of, of several days. For the last probably seven months, he's been in large agony. And I can't do anything so far to, to save this kid from that. So I have had to learn that even though I am incapable, how do I handle that? How do I not become completely frustrated with myself? How do I still minister to a saint if I don't have the answer to their problems? And so God has been teaching me to to bring people to Christ and to the light of what is good in him. So knowing that that's what God is ministering in my heart, that's what he is stirring up inside of me, I should take opportunity then when I talk to people to, to teach people what I'm learning. This is what God has been showing me lately. It's been a humbling process. Do you have any things that God has shown you that has helped you in this this area? How have you coped with your weakness? Because I need to learn to do that better. As just one example, uh, I've been considering how the order salutis is important to our theology, how it matters whether you're regenerated and then then you have faith and are are baptized or whether you you, you have faith and then you're regenerated. These things make sense to, to talk about and to think about. And so as I'm studying those things, I want to be prepared to talk about those issues with my brothers and sisters. So gear yourself up to have those conversations even before you get around other believers and be eager to speak about these things. Here's another suggestion. Ask your brothers and sisters, what are you doing in your family worship times? Okay? Now, family worship is something that is new to a lot of Christians. It was never talked about in our church for many years until a few years back we started to encourage you. Think about times regularly in your home. You can just sit down with your kids, with your spouse. You can open the Bible and just simply read a few verses together, sing a little song or two, and pray as a church. And you'll be amazed at how much those conversations immediately become relevant to the things you're going through as a family. And so ask your brothers and sisters, say, what have you been doing in your family worship times lately? This is something that Mike McGowan and I talk about all the time. We, we love to compare notes because we both have seen the benefit of leading our families in the truth and, and by washing our wives in the water of the word. And so if they say, well, what's family worship? And now you've got something to talk about. If they say, well, we know we should be doing it, but we, didn't have, we haven't been doing it, then you can share what you've been doing. You can give them some encouragements. You can help them to be assured that if you follow the words of God, then he will bless and he will grow. Or if they've been doing it, now you get to learn from them. You get to hear the great testimony of how God is affecting their family through those times of family worship. So that could be a regular question. A third, ask, what are you reading in the word of God lately? And has the Lord used any particular passage to be a blessing to you? Wouldn't it be great if our church was so used to hearing that question? That when they did study the word of God on their own, they couldn't afford to just blaze through it and then check the box, you know? Because somebody at church might ask me what I'm reading, right? So then you stop and you dwell on those words a little bit more. You spend some more time meditating on them. You maybe write a couple of those verses down on a little card, put it in your car so when you're driving back and forth to work, you can think more about it. And then when you get to church and you're talking with other believers and they say, hey, what have you been reading in the word lately? And you could say, actually... Actually, the Lord has been really blessing me. 
Because right now I've been, I've been dealing with the book of Hebrews. And man, I've been so blessed to see God as the greater sacrifice. To realize that all that system that God had put in place in Leviticus was all geared to helping us be ready for Christ. And that we don't have to do that bloody mess anymore because Jesus Christ shed his blood for us once and for all. What, a, what encouragement that has been to me. So ask people what they're reading and be ready to talk to them about what you have been seeing in your times in the scripture. How about another one here? Who in your life have you been praying for for salvation? You know, if we really believe that those who do not have Christ are in danger of judgment, and they are, friends, then there should be a list of people in our lives that we regularly come in contact with who do not know the Lord that we won't stop praying for until they do. So talk to each other. Who are you praying for? Who, who, is, who is being lifted up regularly in your heart that they might receive the gospel? And then take it a step further for good fellowship, for encouragement. Put a hand on that believer's shoulder and pray for that person too. Lift them up right there. Don't say, I'll pray for them and you know, write it down and never do it again. But pray for them right there that they might see the Lord glorified in the salvation of that beloved person who does not yet know Christ. One last one. When someone brings up a hot topic issue in the culture, some piece of news that everyone's heard about, listen to it, interact with it, and then gently move the conversation towards Christ by discussing how a strong trust in Jesus causes us to deal with these kinds of critical issues differently than a person who does not have Christ. What a, a wonderful way to have fellowship. I'm, you know, example, we've been going through a terrible economy lately. And inflation is out of control. How are people who don't know Jesus handling that? You know, there's probably a lot of wringing of hands, a lot of, a lot of anxiety. But there are also probably some ways that we can practically deal with this. And so talk with one another and thank one another that the Lord has given you wisdom that you don't have to be in love with money. You don't have to want the best of all things in this world to be content in the Lord. And that insulates the Christian against a bad economy like this. We don't have to be afraid because we're not engineered to be materialistic people. We have our contentment in Christ. Talk to one another about these things. Rejoice in how the Word of God supplies our needs and prepares us for whatever life has in store for us. The Apostle Paul longs to head to Rome because he wants to draw near to these brothers and sisters and see what God has to teach him through these simple men and women who are also redeemed as he has been. We should likewise desire to spend time with other people of faith so that our own faith might be encouraged and theirs might be encouraged by the faith that God has given to us. One little note on that last phrase of verse 12, it says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now this construct speaks both to the fact that they share a commonality in their faith, that your faith is much like my faith. There is so much in common with our faiths. There is only one true faith, right? Ephesians 4, 4 through 5 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, meaning all who believe there. Much of what one believer experiences with Jesus will be remarkably consistent with what every other believer has experienced. That's part of the joy of orthodoxy, right? But the passage in Ephesians actually goes on in verse 7 to say a little bit more in the next verse. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what that means is that the testimony of the particular ways that God is working in or growing another Christian is often very unique to them. And we are blessed by that kind of diversity. There are so many amazing stories among us of how God has worked and how God has shown himself to be true. So thank God for the unity and the uniformity of Orthodox faith that we can all come alongside each other and say, we believe so many of the same things about the word. We're worshiping the same Jesus who is both God and man. We believe the same scripture, which is inerrant and is sufficient for us. We have all these things in common. But then also to see the diversity amongst believers where one, one believer might have had a terrible background of sin and depravity before the Lord radically saved them out. And you can rejoice in that person's background saying, you learned so much through that. And now 
We, we get to see how God can work in somebody who no one ever thought could be saved. Let's rejoice in the Lord together. And that testimony is different than mine. It's maybe different than yours. But God is working in our ways and applying these universal gospel truths to us in so, so many unique facets that there's always something to marvel at in the work of the church. The testimony of the particular ways that God works in our lives is something that we should be eager to share with one another. These individual Christians have special gifts, they have special talents, and Paul is so eager to meet with them so that he might benefit from those gifts. So as Hebrews 10, 24 encourages us, let us not forsake the gathering together of the saints, but rather let us relish the opportunities that God gives us to bless one another with the gift of true Christian fellowship. We can put that in practice today. Stay after church for a while. Talk to one another. Uh, the Williams family has actually provided sandwiches today for anybody who would like to go upstairs and just make a sandwich so there's a little something to eat while you're talking with your brothers and sisters. Um, we don't have a, another service until 2, our afternoon service. will give us more time to praise the Lord. We will meet and gather, uh, having a time of prayer for about a half an hour before, um, at the beginning. And then we will also uh, be hearing some preaching from the first psalm uh, this afternoon. And so we hope that you'll take time. If you haven't spent that kind of fellowship with us before, try out that afternoon service and spend some extended time with your church family and see how it blesses you and encourages you in the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this day and for the blessing of brotherhood and sisterhood, Lord God. And uh, the reason this church is named First Family Church is because you talk about the church as if it is a family that you have as a good father adopted in all of these ragtag people from all over and made them one cohesive family, Lord God. And so thank you for the unity that you have forged among us and help us to be striving for better clarity and better unity, Lord God. We ask that you would encourage us that the times that we would spend together would be filled with and saturated with the, the goodness of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to be eager to talk about the things that you have revealed to us in your word and help us, God, to be humble when we learn things that we didn't know before, that we might be able to praise you for growing us and challenging us and doing that through other believers. And we ask these things all humbly, God, in Jesus' name.